In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So there is a, a single word that has come to dominate many of the conversations in our culture in recent days. This has been true for a while, but the word I'm thinking of is tolerance. Have you all heard the word tolerance? Do we talk about that in public discourse sometimes? about the way we should do things and the way we should be tolerant towards others. And tolerance, in its essence, is a good thing. Tolerance originally was used with reference to the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, when people were were going back to the scriptures and looking in the scriptures and discovering truth about God and Jesus that had been hidden for some time. And they were bringing that to light, and it was causing all kinds of conflict. There were wars being fought over this. And in England, our tradition extends from England, uh, there was a, a particular amount of this persecution going on. So think about the time of Henry VIII. He was the, the first of the kings to withdraw from the Church of Rome, but he was still a very Catholic king. And he kept things pretty much exactly as they were. He just rejected the, the authority of the Pope. And then he died, and his son Edward became the first really truly Protestant king, and and things swung over here in a very Protestant direction. And then he died after not very many years. He was a sickly boy. He was a boy king. And his older sister, Mary, became the queen. And Mary was a Catholic. And so things swung over here, and Mary started persecuting anybody that didn't want to go back to the Catholic Church and back to the authority of the Pope. This is why she got a special nickname. Does anyone remember her nickname? Bloody Mary. It's not just a, a drink at a bar. It's, it's a queen. <laughs> it comes from this woman, Bloody Mary, because she was persecuting all the people that didn't want to go, around, or go along with the Reformed understanding of the Scriptures. And then Mary dies, and her sister Elizabeth takes the fr- throne. And Elizabeth goes in the Protestant direction again. But Elizabeth does something important. She wants to bring peace in the realm of England. And so she says that the the Church of England is going to be a broad enough church to encompass both those of of a Catholic mind and those of a Protestant mind. We're going to be one church that embraces both of those things. And she pushed religious tolerance. But even there, it wasn't good enough. Because just a few generations later, the Puritans come up. And the Puritans didn't like the Church of England. And so the Puritans, if you remember go to Holland, and then eventually come to America, and this is what we celebrate at Thanksgiving. The Puritans who came as pilgrims to America because of religious persecution that they were facing in England. And what were they seeking? Religious tolerance. So tolerance is, at its essence, is a good thing. And our country was largely founded on a foundation of tolerance and religious freedom. Unfortunately, tolerance has come to take on a new meaning in our contemporary society. Today, it means full acceptance of all ideas as equally true and valid. And this is an entirely different and dangerous animal compared with the true meaning of what tolerance is all about. So just think about the word tolerance for a moment. If I am tolerating you, is that a good thing? Is that a positive thing? Do you get a warm, fuzzy feeling to know that I'm tolerating your presence? No, that's not really a a good thing. That's not a warm, fuzzy thing. It just means, according to the dictionary, 
that I'm allowing the existence, occurrence, or practice of something that one does not necessarily like or agree with without interference. So if I'm tolerating your presence, I'm just, you know, I'm not persecuting you, I'm not, I'm not shooing you out of the church, I'm just tolerating you. But it's not a, a warm, fuzzy thing. It's not a good thing. It's not a positive thing. And you compare that with this other definition that's come into our culture today where all ideas are equally true and valid, and you get something that's kind of messed up. Because some things, as I was talking to the kids about, literally are true or false. There's only one right answer to them. Some things are facts. And when we have a matter of fact, when we have an absolute truth, then we can't just go along with a lie. We can tolerate the lie. We can refuse to persecute someone for the lie. But we can't just say, oh, well, you believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe, and it's all the same. Religious tolerance today is not tolerance at all. Tolerance in its true meaning is something that we should all practice. But tolerance in its contemporary meaning is something that we as Christians cannot practice. To believe that all religions are equally true and valid, or that all religions get you to the same place, is just a lie. And we can't believe a lie, and we can't promote a lie, because we know the truth. And so when we talk about all religions being the same, or all religions getting you to the same place, that's something called relativism or pluralism. It's a very common idea in our society today. But it's something that we as Christians have to reject. Now, how many of you at some point have, have heard someone say, well, I like Jesus. I think he was a great moral teacher. Have you heard that before? It's a really common idea in our culture today. And the reason I think it's so popular is that to view Jesus as simply a great moral teacher puts him on the same place, the same playing field as Muhammad, as Buddha, as Gandhi, as all these other, other people that you can think of great moral teachers, Confucius in China. But what it allows you to do is compare them all, put them all on the same equal footing, and then who becomes the judge of truth? I become the judge of truth, and you become the judge of truth, and you become the judge of truth, and we can all pick and choose which things each of these people said that most appeal to us, and then that becomes our truth. That becomes my truth. And that might differ from your truth, and that's okay. The problem is there's only one truth. All of those people can't all be right, because they said some very significantly different things. But this idea that, that Jesus is a great moral teacher, or that all roads lead to the same place, has been around uh, for quite a few years. It's not a, a recent thing. It's not just five or ten years old. It's been around for hundreds of years. And C.S. Lewis, in the 1940s, during World War II, was doing a series of radio addresses, which became a book that he wrote called Mere Christianity. And he dealt with this same question all the way back in the 1940s. So it's not something new. This is something that people have been thinking about for a long time. And what he came up with is something that people now call C.S. Lewis's trilemma. And what C.S. Lewis said is that when we think about Jesus, he has to be either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. 
Those are really the only three options we have when we think about Jesus. So I'm going to read you a little passage from his book. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on the level with the man who says that he is a poached egg. That's funny. You can laugh. A poached egg. Come on, that's funny. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall down at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. And he didn't, he didn't intend to. So let's think about that for a moment. Let's just break it down. Jesus, if he's just a great moral teacher, but is saying that he's God, he's either lying or he's a lunatic if it's not true. There are lots of people who have come claiming to be Jesus. You can probably think of lots of cults over just the last 15 years where someone has been a a cult leader, has claimed to be Jesus, there's usually mass suicide involved. It's never a good thing. It always ends badly. And we know from Jesus that he will return and that when he does return, it's going to be as clear as night or day. There's going to be no mistaking it when Jesus returns. So for Jesus to stand up there and say that he is the Son of God, if he's just a human, he's either lying, which would disqualify him as a great moral teacher, he'd pretty much have to disqualify everything else he said as well, or he's a lunatic, he's crazy, in which case you kind of have to discount everything he said as well. Those are two options you've got, and the only other option you have is that he's telling the truth. And if he is telling the truth, then it puts claims on our lives because he is the Lord. He is the Son of God. He is the one who he says he is. And so you can believe it or not believe it, but it's not an option to us to just say he was a great moral teacher. We can't have that mixed bag approach where we take a little of this religion and a little of that religion and we mix it all together and we come up with our own cocktail. It doesn't work that way. Because what Jesus said is either true or it's not. But there's no middle ground. We only have the one option open to us. And in the lesson from Acts today, Peter says something pretty similar. If we look at chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, Peter says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which... We must be saved. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is it, according to Peter. We don't have any other options. It's not going to be found in Buddha. It's not going to be found in any of the Hindu gods, any of the Shinto gods. It's not going to be found in Gandhi or Muhammad. None of these people has the power to save. The only name under heaven by which we can be saved is Jesus Christ.
And so, Christianity is either entirely true or it's entirely false. But it doesn't leave any room for the idea that all religions lead to the same place. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says very clearly, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only one. No one else is going to get you to the Father. No one else is going to get you to God. Jesus is the one, the only Son of God. The one, the only way, truth, and life. The only way to the Father. And so truly, there is no other name by which we can be saved except for Jesus Christ. But this puts us face to face with the harsh reality that many people that we know and love in our everyday lives are in spiritual peril. This truth is a truth that has consequences, whether we believe it or not. And so you may have friends or family members or co-workers who don't believe, and if they don't believe, they are in danger. As Christians, we're on a rescue mission. That's our job. That's what we've been sent to do. And the charge that we have comes from Jesus himself. He says it in lots of different places, but in particular, we can look at today's gospel passage, where Jesus is appearing to his disciples in the gospel of Luke. And as he appears and talks to them and verifies that he's truly there, truly risen, he then says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He's saying everything that's come before me, everything that's in the scriptures, from Moses all the way through the prophets, all of the history books, all of them point to me. I'm the one. I'm the one that's been coming and I'm here. And then he says... Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So he gives them a mission. He says that repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name, in Jesus' name, should be proclaimed to all the nations, and that you are witnesses of these things. The mission is to make sure that everybody knows that there's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved but Jesus. We have a truth to proclaim, not an opinion, not a point of view. We have the truth. We have a truth that has consequences. And we have a duty to tell everybody who doesn't know about these consequences, who doesn't know about this truth, we have a duty to make sure that they hear about it and have a chance to interact with it and respond to it. He says, you are witnesses of these things. Here he's speaking to his disciples, and they were witnesses of his life, his teaching, his ministry, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. Hundreds of people saw the risen Jesus. As we talked about last week, the scriptures bear witness to that so that we can bear witness to the world. And we can bear witness about what Jesus has done in our own lives. Because while we may not have seen the risen Jesus 2,000 years ago, we have seen what Jesus has done in each of our lives. 
We have seen the power of God to save today. We have seen the power of God to heal. And so we today, too, are witnesses of these things. Sharing our faith might be a scary thing for some. We might be scared of what people will think of us. We might be scared that they'll think that we're strange or weird. Jesus freaks, like we used to say in the 90s. Or that we might think that we're intolerant. When you tell someone that you believe in Jesus and he's the only way, they might think that of you. They might think you're being intolerant. That I have just as much claim to to my truth as you have to your truth. But Peter and John were facing the same thing when they were ministering 2,000 years ago. Peter and John were arrested and warned not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus at all. It says, So they, speaking of the authorities, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John, they responded saying, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They say, it's in your hands. We know what the truth is, and you can judge whether it's right for us to listen to you instead of God. But we know what the right thing is. We have a truth to proclaim. We stand on the firm witness of Jesus Christ. And we know that there's no other name under heaven by which people can be saved except Jesus. And so you can come after us, you can persecute us all you want, but we have an obligation to proclaim the truth. And the same is true for us today. We have an obligation to proclaim the truth. The world might not always like us for what we have to say. And while that's a hard thing, we must remember that we are people on a rescue mission. Have any of you ever been trained as a lifeguard? Anyone know someone who's been trained as a lifeguard? You have? Yep. When you go as a lifeguard and they teach you what to do if someone is out in the pool drowning, they tell you not to go swim out to the person and grab them and drag them back. Because that person will come after you. They'll start flailing their arms about. They won't trust you in the the emergency of the situation. They will grab onto you and both of you will be pulled under the water and you'll both drown. And so lifeguards always have that, that long buoy thing that's attached to them on a long cord and they swim out to you and they hand you, not themselves, but the buoy. So you can grab onto the buoy and you can wrestle with the buoy. People sometimes wrestle with the people that they're being rescued by. They don't necessarily like being rescued. They don't want to hear that they're wrong. But they need to be rescued just the same. The person's going to drown if someone doesn't swim out and save them. And people will drown, they will die spiritually if they don't hear the truth about Jesus Christ. But as you go, make sure that you always speak the truth in love, as it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. We need to tolerate the falsehoods around us, all the while gently pointing to the, what we know is true. And this is something that Christians have gotten wrong in the past. We've used the truth as a club to beat people with, instead of a truth to woo people with. For generations, people have been 
forced to follow one religion or another with the threat of persecution. But all that happens when you do that is you create a shallow ascent to a truth that you may not believe with, believe in. We're not looking for shallow ascent to a truth that you may or may not believe in. We're looking for a deep faith in Jesus Christ. And that can only come when someone's heart is one to the truth of the gospel. That can only come when someone puts their faith deeply in Jesus Christ. And so we don't want to punish people for believing wrongly. We don't want to even make them feel badly for believing wrongly. We just want to gently point to the truth. To say, how's that working for you? I know a different way. Would you like to hear about it? There's one final thing. We must perform our mission not in our own strength, but in the strength and power of the Holy Spirit. Going back to the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things. And then the next verse he says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He doesn't send them out immediately. He says, wait. And the time they were waiting for is Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection. Because on Pentecost, he sent the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want them to be witnesses in their own strength. He wants them to be witnesses in God's strength. He doesn't send them out alone to accomplish this mission by themselves. He says, I am with you even to the end of the age, in the Gospel of Matthew. We have the Holy Spirit in us as Christians. And it's the Holy Spirit that speaks truth to us. It's the Holy Spirit who guides us. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers us. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us the words when we don't have the words ourselves. And to be his witnesses... We have to be powered by the Holy Spirit. When I was about Kieran's age, about 10 or so, I was visiting my grandparents, or my grandmother, my grandfather had died, and in my grandmother's basement, she had a rusty old reel mower. You know, reel mower, it's like the, the one that has the spiral blades, and you push it, and when you push it, it turns the blades around like that, and it cuts your grass. But this thing was rusty. I don't know when it had last been used. The blades were not sharp at all, but I thought this was the coolest thing in the world because at 10 years old, I wasn't able to push the power mower with the gas, but I could push this thing. It took a lot of strength, took a lot of effort, but I pushed that thing around the, the yard and I was really excited about it. But then I got a little bit older and my parents let me use the power mower, the, the gas mower, the one that you pull on that thing and it, it fires up and you start putting, and you know what? Mowing the lawn wasn't so hard anymore because I had the power to do it. When we're doing things on our own strength, when we're ministering, when we're being witnesses on our own strength, it's like pushing around that rusty old mower with the dull blades. You might do a little bit, but you're not going to do a whole lot. What we need is the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is like that engine on the gas mower with sharp blades that let you cut easily through the grass. When we minister in the power of the Holy Spirit, we get so much farther because we're actually doing what God wants us to do. Doing his work his way. And he always blesses us when we do his work his way. 
He always gives us the power to accomplish the things that he sent us to do. Look at the impact of Peter and John. If we go a little bit beyond our reading today, in verse 13, or no, it was in our reading today. Verse 13, the people are responding, the authorities are responding to their declaration that it's Jesus that saves us, that it's Jesus who healed the crippled man in this story. No, that's the Gospel of John. Acts. There we go. And in verse 13, it says, Now when they, the authorities, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. These were uneducated common men. They were ordinary guys. They hadn't been to rabbi school They had just been in the presence of their rabbi for three years, watching him, being witnesses to what he had done. They were ordinary, common men. And God used them mightily. So mightily that they baffled the authorities who were persecuting them. It says, they had nothing to say in opposition. Nothing to say in opposition. Uneducated common men. But they spoke the truth with power. Because they spoke the truth in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you don't have to go to seminary to be able to share your faith with a friend or a neighbor. All you need to do is be a witness to what God has done in your own life. And let the Spirit lead you and empower you. We have a truth to proclaim. We have news that the world urgently needs to hear. There are consequences for not responding to this truth in the right way. And there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but that of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for your cross, the cross of Jesus, and for his resurrection. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be witnesses to these things. That you'd help us to bear witness to the things that you've done in our own lives. We thank you that you have made us broken vessels. So that we might show that the power comes from you and not from us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would send us in the power of your Holy Spirit to point to you. To point to the way, the truth, and the life that those around us, those in our networks, our friends, our families, our neighbors, might know you and the power of your resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.